Tremendous riches are hidden away in the Old Testament book of Second Chronicles, which is often neglected. First Chronicles was all about King David, but Second Chronicles is about the successors of David, the house of David. Remember that the nation of Israel, the ten tribes in the north, is only viewed in the Bible as it relates to the kingdom of Judah in the south. This book of Second uh, Chronicles follows the course of the kings of Judah, the descendants of David. Both First and Second Chronicles center on the temple, distinguishing these two books from the parallel historical passages recorded in Kings and Samuel. This book gives us a picture of God's king walking in the light of God's house. That's the secret of blessing in the kingdom. Now David and Solomon were both pictures or types of the Lord Jesus. And together these two men, father and son, picture Christ as king over his people. But these books are also a picture of us as individuals. Uh, remember in Hebrews, we're told that Jesus is the pioneer of our salvation. He's the one who's gone the whole course ahead of us, but we follow him. The principles by which he walked are therefore the principles by which we're to walk. He lived his life as an example. Now, of course, it's not his example that saves us. It's his death that saves us. But it's the example of his life that teaches us the principles by which God expects us to walk after we are redeemed. These books picture or symbolize our will as king of our kingdom. In every individual life, it's your will that's king. And the secret of blessing and victory in the Christian life is to subject the will, the king within us, to the temple of God, which is the human spirit, which indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, these Old Testament books are exquisitely accurate pictures. They show us truths in the spiritual kingdom of our own lives. That's one of the great proofs, if not the greatest proof, of the divine inspiration of the Bible. How could men write books that are as wonderfully accurate as these in portraying the issues of the spiritual life? Well, it's impossible in the flesh. It's always the mark of divine activity. Now, the first nine chapters of Second Chronicles all concern the temple. The book opens with a visit of Solomon to the tabernacle in the city of Gibeon. The tabernacle, of course, had been the center of God's guidance to the people all through the wilderness journeys in the, and the days of the judges and the reigns of King Saul and King David and it was located in the city of Gibeon, not Jerusalem. Now Solomon goes there to make an offering. But as we read this account, it immediately transfers us from the tabernacle to the temple, uh, the temple site which David had bought in Jerusalem. And that is a, is a transition symbol that uh, uh, pictures uh, when the, that when the Lord Jesus reigns as king in our life and we yield to his lordship, then we no longer have a relationship with a, with a traveling tabernacle which follows us in our up and down experience, but we now begin, begin to walk in a more permanent relationship in which God's king 
is ruling and walking in the light of God's house. Now it was in Jerusalem that God had placed his name, and that's where he intended his people to worship. In the second chapter, the count goes on to show how the temple was built by Solomon, though it was planned and provision was made for it by David. It was Solomon as a type of Christ, as the Prince of Peace, because Solomon was a peaceful king who was given the honor of actually building the temple. He thus represents the picture that's completed in the New Testament where the Lord Jesus himself is the builder of the temple of the human spirit. Remember in Hebrews we're told that Moses had honor in God's house, the tabernacle, as a servant, but Christ had more honor just as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Christ, you see, is the builder of the house of the Spirit. And there in Hebrews we're told, we are his house. He's the one who made the temple of our body, which contains the sanctuary of the Spirit. Now, all this is portrayed for us in the physical temple described here in Second Chronicles. What a beautiful place it must have been. It was rather small as temples go, but incomparably beautiful. The whole interior was completely lined with gold. Everything was made of gold. In one place in Second Chronicles, it, it says that silver was actually counted as nothing in the days of Solomon. The furniture, except for the Ark of the Covenant, was rebuilt completely. That is, the furniture that had been in the tabernacle. In other words, this temple, in contrast to the tabernacle, represents a new beginning. Now, I think many of us have experienced this in our personal lives, when we intelligently, conscientiously, and with permanent intention yield ourselves fully and deliberately to the Lordship of Jesus. It feels almost as though we had been born again. It's a new beginning. You remember that's why I think certain groups feel there is a second work of grace. Uh, it, it, it is such a glorious experience of release, of relief, and of victory that they say, well, this must really be something new and different. Maybe this was when I was born again. But, you see, it was there all along in potential. When I received the Lord Jesus, the Spirit of God came to dwell in my life. But he was there for many months, even years, before I began to enter into the fullness of what his presence meant, by a willing submission in obedience to his right to be king. Now that's what's depicted here in the new beginning of the temple. All is remade except the Ark of the Covenant, because the guarantee of God needs no renewing. Now the prayer of Solomon in chapter 6 shows that the temple was also made for the restoration of sin. Whether the people were under circumstances of spiritual failure or under the punishment of captivity, they were to remember that if they would pray in earnestness, genuinely confessing their sin, God would hear them, heal their hearts, and restore them to their rightful place. When Solomon had finished his prayer here in chapter 6, while all the people waited outside in the temple courts, fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice on the altar. Immediately the, the temple 
was filled with a cloud of glory so that the priests could not enter. That was a sign that God had accepted the offering and of the presence of God in, in this house. Now that is immediately followed by an account of the tremendous conquests and glory of the kingdom. We have the account in chapter 9 of the visit of the Queen of Sheba to Solomon. Hollywood, notwithstanding, the account of the Queen of Sheba is a wonderful, illustrative picture of how God intended the whole of the earth to know the story of his grace. Jews in the days of Israel weren't sent out into the whole world as Christians are commanded to do in the Great Commission. God's grace then was displayed by the building of a land and a people and a place that was so wondrously blessed of God, so obviously different from everything and everyone around that word of it spread to the uttermost parts of the earth. People came to Jerusalem from all over the earth to hear and to learn the secret of God's activity. Now that portrays for us, I think, God's supreme method of evangelism. Every believer, wherever he is in the world, is to be living the kind of life where the Spirit of God inhabits his temple, his own spirit, and is in control of his will. And when believers are walking in obedience to the indwelling Spirit, their lives will manifest the victory, the rejoicing, the blessing, the spiritual prosperity, the joy of the Lord. So much so that people around about will ask, what is this about these people? What do they have? I want to know what they've got. What's this all about? When the Queen of Sheba came to Solomon, as we read in chapter 9, she saw the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants and their clothing, his cupbearers and their clothing, and his burnt offerings which he offered as the house of the Lord. And when she saw all of this, it says there was no more spirit in her. In other words, she said, as is often quoted, the half was never told me. I never dreamed it could be like this. Look at verses 5 and 6. Have you ever had that experience in your life? Have you ever had somebody say to you after coming to know you intimately, you know, there's something about your life that drew me when I first saw you. Now I've learned the secret of it. In the place, the inner place of your heart, you are resting on the great presence of the Lord Jesus. That's what Peter says, isn't it, in his letter. But in your hearts, he says, reverence Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. 1 Peter 3.15 You see, that's God's primary method of evangelism. Now in Second Chronicles, chapters 10 through 36, 26 chapters, give us the record of the kings of Judah up to the time of the captivity of this kingdom by Babylon. Nine of these were good kings, and eleven of them were bad. Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, who reigned for fifty-five years on the throne of Judah, started out as the worst king in Judah's history, but ended up as one of the best, because God reached him, redeemed him, and restored him. 
And as you read through these accounts, the bad kings reveal to us the pattern of temptation and evil in a disobedient heart. There's a declining standard followed. It begins with the infiltration of evil into the kingdom, and, uh, remarkably, at a rather trivial level. We read of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, in chapter 10, who was unwilling to follow the good counsel of the wise men of his kingdom. He asked the older men, What shall I do now that I'm king? How shall I treat the people? And they said, Well, your father was rather severe with them. But if you're more gentle and more lenient, they will love you and serve you. But the young men who were advising him said, No, don't do that. If your father was strict, you be stricter. And Rehoboam refused to follow the old men's good counsel. That's really all he did. Yet that was the beginning of the evil that was in its final stages to destroy his kingdom. A little later in chapter 12, verse 1, we find a further lowering of the standards. We read, when the rule of Rehoboam was established and was strong, he forsook the law of the Lord. You see, he turned a deaf ear to what God said. He no longer listened to the word. And as a result, the kingdom was invaded by the Egyptians. The moment there's a turning away from obedience to the rule of God in the temple of God, there's an immediate weakening of the defenses of life, and enemies begin to invade our lives. It was only by God's grace that the Egyptians were turned back. When Rehoboam humbled himself and returned to God, then the Egyptians were repelled. The next bad king, Jehoram, appears in chapter 21, verse 4. It were told when Jehoram had ascended the throne of his father and was established, he slew all his brothers <coughs> with the sword and also <coughs> excuse me, some of the princes of Israel. What do you call that? Well, jealousy, wasn't it? First there was a refusal to give heed to good advice. Then a deaf ear was turned to the law. Now the spirit of jealousy assaults the kingdom. And that is immediately followed, as we read in verse 11, by another downward step. It says, Moreover, he made high places in the hill country of Judah, and he led the inhabitants of Jerusalem into unfaithfulness and made Judah go astray. Now, in one sense, these high places did not yet represent full, uh, uh, full-orbed idolatry. These were high hills where the people worshipped Jehovah. They didn't worship pagans or idols. They worshipped uh, the God who had been revealed to them. The problem was that that was not the place where God had told them to worship him. He had put his name in the temple, and it was there that they were to worship and offer sacrifice. They were worshipping out on the hills because that was where their neighbors and friends were worshipping. In other words... They accommodated themselves to the form of worship of their, of, their of their pagan neighbors. They were simply downgrading and reducing the true worship of Jehovah to a lower level. Now that too was quickly followed by invasion and by disease. As you read, you find that King Jehoram was immediately afflicted by an invasion from the Philistines 
who represent in our lives the desires of the flesh. The next bad king is King Ahaz. In chapter 28, verses 1 and 2, we read, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, like his father David, but walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made molten images for the Baals. Now, this is the account of the actual introduction of vile, despicable practices of idolatry, primarily sexual in nature, uh, from taken from the pagan worship of, of Baal, but introduced into Israel. And Israel, uh, as a nation, was increasingly afflicted by these practices. The kings were responsible for introducing them. As we read of King Ahaz in verses 3 and 4, he burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and he burned his sons as an offering, according to the abominable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, and on the hills, and under every green tree. You see, the pattern is the same. And once again, this is followed by invasion. Verse 5, Therefore the Lord his God gave him into the hand of the king of Syria, who defeated him and took captive a great number of his people. Do you ever wonder why you fall prey to many of the afflictions and oppressions, the neuroses and psychoses of our day? Well, it may be because the defenses of the temple are destroyed. Some inner idolatry is weakening us, and we find ourselves defenseless against these invaders of the spirit that bring about depression and frustration and defeat and darkness. All the way through this book, there's a constant battle against the flood of wicked practices during the reign of these kings. You see, it makes a difference what you let yourself do. It begins to weaken your defenses when you give way to wrongful practices. By contrast now, the good kings of this account reflect the grace of God in cleansing and restoring, and they also reveal the instruments that he uses to cleanse and restore. There are five great reformations recorded in Israel as God seeks to arrest the deteriorating process in this nation and bring it back to the place of glory and blessing as it was in the days of David and Solomon. The first of these periods of reformation was under King Asa. The account is found in chapters 14 through 16. In chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, we read, And Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He took away the foreign altars and the high places, and he broke down the pillars and hewed down the asherim. The pillars uh, are representative of the male sex organ and the asherim of the female, so that these symbols of sex actually signified the worship of sexuality by the people. Now God commanded Judah, in verse 4, to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandments. And when they obeyed, 
it was followed by deliverance. Verse 9, Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men. What a monstrous attack. And three hundred chariots, and he came as far as Marishah. Now, we may be put under pressure at times, but if the heart is obedient to the revelation of the Holy Spirit within the human spirit, then our defenses are secure against whatever may come. As Isaiah says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The principle of power is clearly declared when Asa, returning from the battle with the Ethiopians, meets the prophet Oded in chapter 15. We're told he, Oded, went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while you are with him. You hear that? The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he says, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Now that forsaking that God does is never to give us over completely to be lost. He forsakes only in the sense of not providing any power or victory or ability to walk. It's the same in the New Testament. It declares that God is fully available to you if you are prepared to be fully available to him. Paul says, remember in Philippians, I press on to make it, that is the power of Christ's resurrection, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. In other words, he's saying, I long to be as fully available to him as he is prepared to be available to me. That's always the secret of real power. That was what was declared to King Asa for his benefit and, of course, for ours. Now, each of these kings who leads the restoration shows us a different principle of restoration. In Asa, we find the determination to obey the law, to straighten out the externals of our life, to quit doing what's wrong. In chapter Uh, 15, verses 12 to 15, we read, They entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul, and that whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman. They took oath to the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with horns, and all Judah rejoiced over the oath. For they had sworn with all their heart, and had sought him with their whole desire, and he was found by them, and the Lord gave them rest round about. That describes a heart that has awakened at last to the fact that it had been drifting off into weakness, failure, into assault by enemies, into bondage and slavery once more. And the way of return is a renewal of the vow, a renewal of the determination to seek the Lord, a hunger and thirst for the Lord, to walk in his sight. And immediately, there's a return to rest. Now, that's the first principle of restoration. Then in the reign of King Jehoshaphat, the next king on the throne of Judah, there's another time of restoration after failure. Jehoshaphat cleans out the idols of the land. 
In chapter 17, verses 7 and 9, the second principle of restoration, the ministry of teaching, is described. We read, In the third year of his reign he sent his princes, and they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. Now that's another principle of return, the ministry of teaching, which uh, is also followed immediately by deliverance. Look at verse 10. And the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were round about Judah, and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. Later, however, Jehoshaphat in weakness makes an alliance with Israel, and there's an invasion again from Ammon, Moab, and Edom, all types of the flesh. But God delivers him in a wonderful way. It would be well worth your time to read this carefully. God says, you don't have to fight these enemies of the flesh. Don't try to subdue with your willpower all these evil desires of bitterness, jealousy, revenge, and lust. That is, the evil feelings within you. Don't try to fight them. God says, believe. Believe what I've already done. That's the way of victory. You're not capable in yourself of defeating these things. Instead, Stand still and you will see the deliverance of God. That's what God said to Jehoshaphat. So God fought for them and these enemies were defeated. In chapter 20, verse 24, we're told, When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude and behold, they were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. By the time they got to the battlefield, you see, the victory was won. Now believe what God has done to the flesh in the cross of Christ. We don't have to fight the flesh. We have to remember it's been conquered. It's been nailed to the cross, rendering it uh, absolutely worthless and, uh, and incapable of doing anything of value for us. When we believe and act on that principle, these things will just disappear. Even if they do come back again five minutes later, they can always be overcome by the same principle of remembering that's no longer you. God has freed you from that. Therefore, claim that victory in his name. Now, in King Joash, chapters 23 and 24, you have the third principle of restoration. The restoration of Israel then was by the collection of taxes. Imagine that on all things. Chapter 24, verses 4 and 5 tell us, After this, Joash decided to restore the house of the Lord, and he gathered the priests and the Levites and said to them, Go out to the cities of Judah and gather from all Israel money to repair the house of your God from year to year and see that you hasten the matter. Now, something had been neglected. No one had been paying the cost for repairing the temple. So it had fallen into such disrepair that the doors were actually shut. No sacrifice was being offered and no uh, no ritual was being performed. Joash, realizing this, gathered in money to restore the temple. Now remember, the temple is a picture of the human spirit and the restoring and repairing of it uh, portrays the strengthening of the spirit. How? Well, by what we call restitution, the paying of that which is owed. 
It may be an apology to someone, or the restoring of something wrongfully taken, or putting back something that has been wrongfully used. No matter what it may be, that's the principle of return, restitution. Then in Hezekiah's reign is the fourth principle of restoration, chapters 29 through 32, the cleansing of the temple. When Hezekiah came to the throne, the nation had fallen on such terribly evil days that the temple was actually filled with rubbish and filth. There was garbage throughout all the courts of the temple. And Hezekiah set the people to cleaning the temple. They started carrying out the rubbish and Believe it or not, it took them 16 days to clean the temple. At last, when it was clean, they restored the worship and celebrated the Passover for the first time since the days of Solomon. Now, what is that picture in our life? Well, it pictures the cleansing of the temple of the Spirit, that is, the putting away of the filth that has accumulated, turning away from ideas and concepts to which we have given ourselves, turning back to the worship and the cleansing of the Lord. Maybe we've been indulging in pornography or giving our minds over to the the, uh, television programs to such a degree that we no longer think godly. Well, that needs to be cleansed. And this is an important principle of restoration. Then in Josiah, the last good king of Judah, you find the last principle of restoration. When Josiah came to the throne, the temple had fallen into complete disuse again. He set the people to cleaning it up, and in chapter 34, verse 14, we read, While they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. That sounds incredible, doesn't it? But the people had actually forgotten that there was a copy of the Law of Moses in the temple. The priests hadn't read from it for ages. It had been so neglected that in in this land that it had been totally forgotten. And when the priests went through the temple to clean it, they accidentally found the Law of the Lord, brought it to the king, and read it to him. You find that in 34.19. When the king heard the words of the Lord, what did he do? Well, he rent his clothes, he tore his clothes, and he commanded the men around him to inquire the Lord what he should do. And in verses 29 and 31, we're told, The king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites. All the people, both great and small, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments. So there's a return now to the hearing of the word, a deliberate return. You can't go back and change the record of the past. You can't, um, you know, wipe out the the record and the uh, evil results of lives uh, that have been lived in failure and weakness. But what you can do 
is to return to the hearing of the word. Jesus said now to his disciples, Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. So let the word clear your mind and heart. And that's the great principle of restoration. The people, you see, in uh, in uh, uh, Joash's day had gone a long way down. The patience of God was almost ended. Or Josiah's day, I'm sorry. The last chapter gives us the account of the terrible dark days when Nebuchadnezzar took the city captive and set a puppet king upon the throne who also rebelled against him. And then Nebuchadnezzar set his brother on the throne and he too rebelled until at last he had to come and destroy both the rebellious city and the temple, burning it with fire. Now go back for a moment to the early chapters and look again at that wonderful scene when Solomon, in all his royal robes of glory, knelt before the people and prayed to the God of heaven. The whole kingdom is at peace. Solomon is reigning over the uttermost limits of the kingdom promised to Abraham from the river Euphrates down to the river of Egypt. All the peoples around him are at peace, and the fame of his kingdom has gone out to the ends of the earth. People were actually making pilgrimages to the city of Jerusalem to, to see for themselves the glory of God. The fire of God comes down from heaven. The glory of God fills the whole temple like a cloud. What a marvelous sight. Then contrast with that the the final scene here in the close of the book with the temple lying in ruins, the city destroyed, the people, slaves and bondservants in a foreign country, the whole of the land given over to its enemies. That's the picture that God draws for us of what can happen to us when the heart walks in disobedience. And yet God's patience And his love is visible in the whole story of this book. He intervenes again and again to call his people back that he might bless them. Where are you in this picture? What's God doing in your life? Do you need to return? Do you need some of these principles of restoration? Read them through carefully and do business with God again.